you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is fabulous to welcome you to yet another episode of this podcast, Unleashing Brilliance. Today's guest is one inspiring woman and a woman on a mission. Her name is Samantha Gash. She is an ultra marathon runner and a social impact champion. Um, But before she even did any of that stuff, she was an accomplished lawyer working for the largest international law firm in the world. And one day she decided to trade in her heels for running shoes and went out to change the world through highly collaborative social impact campaigns. A trailblazer in the endurance world, Samantha was the first woman and the youngest person at the time to complete the Four Deserts Grand Slam. This apparently is one of the world's toughest endurance competitions that spans thousands of kilometers across the hottest, coldest, driest and windiest deserts on earth. She's probably got between 25,000 to 30,000 Ks under her feet and years of pushing her mental and physical boundaries. And what she does now is use running as a vehicle for social change through advocacy, peer-to-peer fundraising, and uh, integrated digital campaigns. She's also the host of her own podcast, the Sam Gash Podcast. This conversation was fabulous in terms of uh, talking through her watershed moments, uh, the key learnings that she has about herself around some of those big decisions that she's made and this uh, ability to mentally challenge yourself when it comes to achieving more than you ever thought you were capable of. We talk about um, actually getting clear on how you want to show up for others. Um, We talk in depth about um, how if you actually want to do something different, if you are a bit of a square peg in a round hole or doing something unique versus conforming, that actually you do have to work harder for it. You have to push harder for it. And she talks about how um, actually um, so many of us sell ourselves short. And actually what we've got to start thinking about is um, constantly having on rotation in our heads that question of, What's the next best plan? What's the next best plan? This is a fabulous conversation in terms of pushing yourself further than you can ever go, in terms of self-belief, in terms of endurance mentally and physically, and absolutely in terms of unleashing your inner brilliance. Please enjoy this latest podcast conversation with the amazing Samantha Gash. Samantha Gash, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to today's podcast. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for having me on. I can't wait to delve into this conversation. I mean, you describe yourself right now as an ultramarathon runner and a social impact champion, and there's so much that we're going to talk about around that. But before all of that, um, you actually were a lawyer. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your journey. Where did it all start? And and in particularly that that journey to law and then changing everything. 
Yeah, I don't think I'll ever drop the at least lapsed lawyer title. <laughs> I mean, particularly when you study something for a decade, um, it is integral to, I guess, your past and what your past is determines kind of who you are in the future. And so, yeah, I, w- I worked in corporate law. Uh, I studied for a really long time and then kind of interned at a law firm during that time frame as well. So I guess, you know, my early years in that legal space ha- has certainly shaped how I think about things now. I'm definitely uh, highly uh I would say I'm like highly risk adverse, but I definitely analyze um, all the risks in everything that I do. And it doesn't mean that I avoid the risks, but I always try and mitigate them where I can. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I did have the intentions of, of staying in corporate law, but I was always intrigued by like other worlds. I was always intrigued by like the idea of working in performing arts. And, and I actually studied a double degree in, in performing arts and law because I wasn't sure which direction I would go. Um, but I will say that I, my interest in law was always in social impact, um, you know, not-for-profit international law, uh, but I kind of got funneled into the corporate law arena like so many people do when they are in their law degree because there's this big emphasis on like that's the next step in the conveyor belt and so you kind of get drawn into it particularly if you're a competitive A-type personality Uh, you can't help but go through you know the clerkship process the grad program process it's 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 highly intense as you're studying this degree and you know I was very lucky to get a job at a Baker McKenzie which is the largest international law firm and I was drawn to that law firm because it looked like that they took on graduates who were slightly different um, in the mould than what might go to the other kind of corporate law firms. Um, they looked at people who, who obviously had a high interest in the international arena, um, they had an interest in human rights, even though that's not what the law firm practices. Uh, it's definitely corporate law. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a couple of years in that space and I think yeah, I found it a challenging experience and it's interesting because today on social media, Um, there's this thing called like the black and white campaign where women are supporting women and it made me reflect on times in my life when I haven't been supported by other women and maybe I haven't been as supportive as I should be and in one space where I really felt let down by the sisterhood is when I worked in corporate law and it was women in seniority who you would hope would mentor you um sometimes really didn't and made it a almost torturous experience and place to be in because you felt like you were people were waiting for you to fail versus waiting to support you to get to the next step oh my gosh I mean I think there's I I often talk to that when I'm I'm speaking to female audiences about how actually we can be our own worst nightmares if we're if we're not careful. Uh, whether it be our lack of self belief, whether it be that we're judging each other, or whether it be that we're not actually being those Rapunzels. And so, as you were was saying that, I'm going, gosh, yeah, it's and it continues, right? What what has that taught you in terms of what you do now? When you think back to the sisterhood letting you down, what what is it? actually forced you to do do you think in terms of your everyday work I think the first thing to actually do is to perhaps identify why there is that toxic environment with women to women and I because I think it's important to understand it to try and 
to, to navigate through it and to, and to be different yourself. And hopefully if you're different yourself, it, that creates a ripple effect for what can be done in the future as well. So the, the first thing I think is, you know, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, women who were kind of like in a corporate uh, legal arena had to sacrifice so much to be successful in that space. Um, perhaps they had to make really critical decisions of can I have a family versus have work? I think it's important to always remember that uh, we live in, in a space now where we are often told, oh, we can have it all, um, although we get told you can have it all but perhaps not you can have it all really well at the same time. But we do believe that we can have a family life, a work life, um, and maybe, you know, uh, passions to be fulfilled outside of work as well. But I do believe, you know, years ago that wasn't the case. And so perhaps when you're in a work arena and I think of myself as a graduate lawyer and I'm like, I'm still running and I'm still doing this and I'm doing this and I'm also going to be a great lawyer, maybe for those who had trodden the path previously, there's this internal resentment going, I had to give up that. Like I wasn't able to be all those things to be in this space right now. And so for me, that helped understand maybe where some of the animosity came. Um, maybe sometimes it was unconscious animosity. And so I, for me, I feel like the how I want to show up right now is like I had the option to be all those things at once and it was freaking hard and I had to fight hard for it. Uh, and I was potentially judged along the way for having multiple things. But how do I want to show up now for other women who are, you know, perhaps coming up in the ranks behind me or who are my peers or who are my seniors. And the only thing that I can say is if an opportunity doesn't come your way but comes to someone else, as opposed to thinking a slice of the pie is being taken away from you, constantly remind yourself that you can always create another pie. And in the sporting arena, I think, um, you know, if you think of sponsorships, you, you often think that you have to fight very, very, very hard to get something and there's a um, there's not many other opportunities. But I, I truly believe that you need to believe in abundance and that if you go out supporting other women, abundance will come your way versus a scarcity mindset. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think it really is that ripple effect that we can all have if we actually work together and lift each other up as opposed to, as you said, that, that uh, zero-sum game that some people, some people play. Um, now, you, you went from law into, you say in your bio, about trading your heels for running shoes and setting off in another direction. Was there a particular watershed moment uh, for you that changed the course of your career, that moved you from law to doing what you're doing now? Mm, it's a good question. Um, I don't think there's like this one moment where you kind of say to yourself, I'm going to completely change the course of what I've done for the last couple of years and go into an entirely different direction. Um, there was like a series of events. But if I was to think of like triggering events, uh, I wasn't completely content where I was. I, I did feel like I had to abandon a lot of the other things that I cared about to be really good in law. And when I was considering that sacrifice, and it did feel like a sacrifice, I asked myself that question that so many of us should always ask, am I happy with that? Uh, and for me, I just kept thinking, I never want to be someone that complains about what I'm doing when the reality is I can make a change. 
And I also realized that maybe it was easier to make a change before I got really um, ingrained in the security, um, potential financial security and professional security of being as a lawyer for the long run. So the question was, do I make this change now when it potentially is easy for me? Or do I wait for later down the track where I have financial security, but maybe then I really need to keep that? So I, I remember I started to just deviate a little bit and I, I ran across the Simpson Desert um, and people kind of always said to me, were you, were you running across it like a forest gump where you, you know, were you essentially trying to run away from, you know, the law or your problems? But I wasn't. I was trying to run towards purpose. I was trying to run towards something that made me feel like I was having meaning and connection because I felt really isolated in, in the legal environment. I didn't feel like as a part of a team. And so when I, I ran across that and I was raising funds for an early education mobile play scheme vehicle with, that was supported through Save the Children. So I was running, which made me feel alive. I was connecting it to something that I cared about. I had a small team that came out with me to do it. So I, I love that power of micro teams working together for something bigger than themselves. And then I got back to the law firm on the Monday. So I essentially did the run. It was 389 kilometres and I did it nonstop one, to try and raise a lot of funds, but two, because I hadn't accrued much annual leave time. So I needed to be back <laughs> on my first of Monday, which meant I was exhausted. Like I didn't sleep for three days, 14 hours and 28 minutes. And I got back to, um, to the office on Monday. I'd been on the project on Sunday. I was in the Herald Sun that day in a terrible article that was called Gash is doing a dash to raise some cash. Oh, <laughs> um, alliteration to the key. And then I like I, I rocked up on the Monday and no one cared. Like mm. no one cared what I had done. And I was just back to kind of like the rat race. And it's not like I was doing it to be acknowledged but I just didn't feel like a part of something. I didn't feel like people cared what I cared about. And that was just like a little, I, I remembered that moment of feeling kind of just a small cog in a big machine. And I don't, I don't think that's terrible, but it was just like one of those reminders where I was like, mm, I wonder if this is not my people. I wonder if this is not the place where I'm meant to be. And then a couple of years later, I, st I stuck at it and a couple of years later I had another circumstance where the project, which was like my side hustle project where I was going to run across South Africa's Freedom Trail, was taking so much of my being that I knew that I wasn't showing up well as a lawyer. Um, and I think that's another reminder to you. If you're not showing up in the space that's actually earning you the income and you don't have a passion and drive to kind of be better, then maybe you're also not in the right place because you're certainly not servicing yourself, but you're also not servicing the people who are paying you, you know, your income. And so I actually decided to, to leave my job uh, and to just run across South Africa without having the connection to my professional job. And I, it was the first time in my life where I was leaving something and having no idea what I was going to go to because I certainly didn't think running was going to be a full-time job for me uh, and it was going to be something that I could sustain, you know, for, you know, as a career. Uh, and the reality was when I ran, like, it was actually incredibly liberating because not only did I not know what it was going to be like to run for 32 days across a country, I didn't know what I was returning to and it was almost what I needed to discover what I wanted. So there's so much in in that Sam that I just want to quickly explore. You know, um, again, just going back, you spent. You don't just become a successful, accomplished lawyer. It takes years and years of 
of training and education and commitment um, to build that profile, then it doesn't just happen that you run, what, 389 kilometers across the Simpson Desert and then you do the other one. That, again, takes its own commitment. And then that third piece of the choice around leaving that corporate career that everyone had seen you invest time and effort into essentially not knowing what's next. Um, You talk about it being liberating and you talked about almost the unknown being liberating. But but were there were there people around you that were questioning what you were doing? And and if if so, how did you respond to them? And the reason I'm asking this, Sam, is I know there'll be people listening that have dreams, that that have things they want to change. that may want to give something up to create something new, but often it's it's that uh, there's a fear that stops them from doing it, and you were able to push past that. So I'm just curious as to whether there were voices around you and what you did um, in terms of fueling your own belief to make that change. I mean, there were voices. I think the loudest voices are probably the ones that you have um, yourself. Um, you know, I, as I said, I, like, I had spent a decade studying a double degree in performing arts and law and then doing my honours. Um, it took me so long because I was doing a lot of other things at the same time, so I kept kind of going part-time study. And But I think I had already started to pave um, the way of doing things a little bit unconventionally, even at university. So I managed to get myself on the elite athlete program, which meant that I could do my exams at a completely different time to everyone else in the law library versus going to Caulfield University and doing them in the big cohort. So in my last two years of study, I was, you know, I was racing around the world and I was in Antarctica and I was in the Gobi Desert and Egypt. So I feel like it was it's the first time that you start to do things outside of the norm or outside of convention or out, and and I'm talking about your own norm and convention they could be they could be completely normal for someone else but you have got to think relatively to yourself mm. um and to so the first time you do it it's always the most kind of scary like oh am I am I going to be accepted to do this am I going to be allowed to do it and my biggest takeaway is if you don't ask and if you don't try and create that reality then it's not going to happen it's like the education system today. They try and teach everyone the exact same way. Like I think of our kids and they're going through an education system which is designed to work for the masses, not for individual specificity. So if you want something unique, you have to push for it. You can't think that it's just going to come your way organically. So that's lesson number one. And lesson number two is, of course, there are going to be people who whether they show it vocally or show it through the way they interact with you, that they that they doubt your ability to create a space that's unique to you. Uh, and, and you've got to remember they're either doing it because they really care for you and they're fearful that it's not going to work out or maybe there's a little bit of jealousy that you're trying to do something that works uniquely to you and sometimes that rubs tension to people because again, it's mass herd mentality. Like people feel more comfortable when everyone's going in the same direction. And typical tall poppy syndrome in Australia, you know, if you start to kind of like deviate from the masses and maybe, you know, your head kind of goes a little bit above other people, like it's ingrained in our Australian DNA and our culture to try and bring you back down to size. Mm. So you just have to kind of remember I'm, I'm trying something that works for me and then the next thing is like, if it does not work out, 
it, it's okay. Like you can always return back to where you were or to try something different, which is why it is always important if you are going to leave uh, employment um, to leave with grace and kindness and respect because you may want to return back to it. And that's perhaps something I could have done better when I was leaving law. I think sometimes when you're making those decisions, you know, you're you're wanting to leave because you don't think you're showing up in a great space. And I guess the one of the things that I would tell my my the version of me 10 years ago is like keep working the best that you can do, show up the best that you can because always try and leave doors open. Hmm. I'm listening to you and I uh, it's almost like the conversation I'm having with my 14-year-old daughter at the moment who uh is when your commentary about the education system, um, you know, she absolutely is the square peg in the round hole and, and struggling with being that individual. And um, it's almost what, you, what you're saying is exactly what I'm telling her. It's like, come on, you need to, to fight for it. It will all work out for the best. But, you know, sometimes for some people, conforming and doing what everybody wants to do is, isn't, isn't their happy place. So do you think, um, looking back, Sam, before we get on to the work that you're doing now, um, you know, you've obviously got an innate drive, inner determination, courage, whatever it may be. Um, looking back to your childhood, was that always there or is it something that you learned or something that someone taught you? Or as I said, do you think you've just always innately been somebody that's pushing those boundaries in your own way? Yes and no. and I think that's the answer for most of us like I I, there's times when I I didn't like to stand out uh, particularly when I wasn't good Um, and you know a bit about my story is you know though I do sports now pretty much for a living um, I was like I couldn't have been um, less athletically talented (laughs) as a kid Uh, and so because of that I never really wanted to play in the athletic sporting um, arena I didn't even want to try uh, because it was a space that I did stand out but for all the wrong reasons for not being good Uh, and so there was a period of my life where I just wanted to do things where I was very sure of how they would look Uh, But, you know, I'm thinking back to your daughter right now. Often the things that we get told about when we're we're a kid um, are the things that make us incredibly successful when we're Mm. later in life. Uh, And, you know, for me, like I was always told off for talking too much and I I could never sit still. And and those are two things that probably are still very ingrained in me today. But now I actually make my living from it. Uh, I make my living from moving around all over the place and first speaking as a career. So I think it's important to, as as a kid, to kind of know what you're good at or know what you like to do, but to try and harness it in a way that kind of is cohesive in the environment in which you're in. So to kind of, and this is, these are conversations that parents can have with their, their children going like, I know you're getting told off because you always want to rate, you, you always want to make a comment to everything. And you can have that conversation of maybe that's jarring in this situation because, you know, your teacher wants everyone to have a voice. But then to kind of go, I love that that's what you like to do. And maybe every single time that you want to share something, you know, maybe write it down on a piece of paper and raise your hand every three times that you think you want to raise your hand. But write down those thoughts every time that you have them. Mm. Um, So I, I think there's ways as a parent that we can help our children navigate the desire to be different and the things that we love to do, but while still being, you know, a cohesive unit in a school environment. 
Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, now, when we look at what you're doing now, you know, once again, you haven't just traded in your heels for running shoes and, you know, doing the little sort of fun run or training people how to do little short runs. You, you're actually a trailblazer in that endurance world. Uh, you talked about the Simpson Desert Run. You're the first to complete the Four Deserts Grand Slam, which apparently is one of the world's toughest endurance, endurance competitions. I'll take your word for that because there's no way I'm going to do that. And I think in your bio, you talk about having, you know, over 25,000, 30,000 Ks under your feet in terms of the amount of, of physical endurance that you put yourself through. Um, do you enjoy it? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about pushing yourself to that limit, Samantha? I mean, and it's not just about pushing myself to the limit. It's the whole gamut of things. Um, I like where it's taken me and I like how it allows me to be incredibly present because, you know, it's quite intense that you don't have the opportunity to dwell on what's past or think about what's to come. Um, I love the people that it's put me in connection with. I love how it's allowed me to explore you know, my purpose through a completely different vehicle. So there's a whole lot of reasons why I love this domain. But the first reason that I did it, and that was the Four Deserts Grand Slam, is that I I realised that I would never, ever do something when I didn't know what the outcome would be. Like that was my aha moment um, because I didn't want to stand out. I just played it incredibly safe in my, my teens. Uh, and so when I was about to accept a, a law job at Baker and McKenzie, I, I almost saw it as a, you know, here's a bucket list, a once in a lifetime, like let's just really live life in a completely different context so you can then be happy to go and sit down at an office and just do that. Um, and so that's when I did that first race in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And it was so intense. Like I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen, you know, 200 people running in the desert with, you know, sand and sand dunes and extreme heat and carrying everything that you need to survive for six days and a pack on your back and having to make these critical decisions of what is essential for you to complete this experience versus don't take too much because you have to actually carry it. So I, I loved the multi-dimension of it, the physicality, but also that it was so much more about your physicality. People might have been the most physical specimens, you know, starting that race. But once the race starts and all these other things happen, it was always about your mind that determined if you were going to take the next step, not how much training were you going to default on um, to get there. And so that's when I started to kind of realize, oh, physically, I'm, at, you know, I'm okay. I'm not great. I'm okay. But mentally, that's that's my strength. And I think in any experience it's good to kind of do like a, an analysis, like where do I show up well? Like where do I struggle? How can I be better? But how can I try and find the strength and make that be the most important part? So, yeah, it, it, it was almost like this trigger point of like I don't want this to just be a bucket list item. Like what if this could be something more in my life? And what, I mean, I can't... I- were there moments in, you know, if you've you've got all those thousands and thousands of Ks under your feet, um, have you got an example that you can share with our listeners around when you really had to dig deep mentally to keep going? Um, and 
maybe then how you'd align that to, because you talk a lot about peak performance and helping other people. This isn't just about athletes. It's not just about corporate executive, um, sorry, not just about people trying to do crazy sports. You know, a lot of what you talk about now is how to take those learnings into everyday lives. So have you got a specific example that you you can share that that you can then actually turn around to be uh, a learning that that everybody could take as they're tackling their own version of an endurance journey? I mean, pretty much in every race, you you have a series of moments where you really have to ask yourself, like, am I am I going to move on from this? And it, it also that plays out in your everyday life. And I'll even say sometimes when I like, I've got a two-year-old son and like, mm-hmm. I'll go like, okay, we're going to go out for a hike today and I'm going to put him in the backpack. And then you get like, 500 meters and he's screaming pulling your hair and trying to get out of the pack and you're going am I going to do this today like is this worth it so like this plays out in every life and it's not just in an in an ultra race it's just I think probably a bit more palpable in an ultra race mm-hmm. um so I, I guess a really good example would be uh, when I was running across India in in 2016 and you know that project took me from uh, the west of India um, in Rajasthan, which is, you know, an enormous desert in the west of the country, and I, I started in a place called Jaslamir. And I, I ran all the way to the east uh, into the Tia states in Shillong. So obviously it's an enormous physical challenge. It was 3,500 kilometres. It was 77 days long. Like the objective was not just to run but to also meet with different community groups along the route um, groups that were um, supported by World Vision in different capacities, whether it be supporting them in access to, to food, um, to help them with security. Um, so it could have been self-defence classes. It could be helping with water sanitation. Like So there was a whole, a whole different reasons. And, and my overarching objective was what are the different reasons why children can't go to school? And let's share those stories and raise funds to support six education programs. So like what you said before, you know, you never just rock up at the start line of these things and just give it a crack. It takes years to get to the start line. And I would say for a lot of people, it's the journey before what is the official start line that's actually the most, it's the hardest thing to do. It's the unglamorous part. It's where you're kind of pulling together support. It's where you're building your own self-belief. It's where you're assembling your team. It's you're understanding your purpose. And in the process to that part, which was two years for the run across India and backtracking even further, I thought about the idea in 2011. So that's kind of almost like fermenting of an idea for five years before actually starting it. And in those points, there was many times when I was like, this is just no one wants a small Australian girl to run across the highways of India, like to try and raise attention to this issue. There was a lot of people who said, it's just a really silly idea. And an example of where I nearly decided I wasn't going to do it is about one week before I launched my project. Um, I mean, there's so many of them, and I'm just going to say one that I've never talked about before. Um, One week before I launched my project, Pat Farmer, um, put out on social media that in the next week he was about to run from the north to south of India. And here I had spent two years prepping this project, I'd gone out to India multiple times, I'd created a relationship with a not-for-profit, which is World Vision. I was just about to launch it and all of a sudden someone launches a similar style project in the same space for kind of the same reason. 
And he had a lot of support, including Australian government support, including, you know, Julia Bishop. And straight away, like you're starting to think, what is the worth in my project when it's going to be done similarly just before me? And uh, it, it was a moment where I was like, am I going to continue and step up in this space? Um, or am I maybe just going to try and put my attention elsewhere? And what I had to tell myself in that moment is I have done the work. I believe in why I'm doing what I'm doing. And one, it's also not a competition. And also to remember that if both of us end up supporting a similar issue, then if you go back to the reasons of why you're doing it, that's better for the people on the ground that you are trying to support. And I think this is where competition gets in the way. If we believe that other people are in the similar space to us, um, we sometimes don't want to play in it. And particularly in feats of endurance, that happens all the time. But I guess that's an example where like I had to really analyse why I was doing what I was doing to get clear on my messaging. And I probably worked even harder at what I was doing because I wanted to show up slick, professional uh, and with reason. And so that's that's one before even starting. And then there's like a zillion during the run. I mean, in India, not one day worked out. Imagine prepping something for two years, crafting a strategy, and then every day it was almost like this shit show of, of occurrences of like it was it was longer in distance or we couldn't park the camper van where we wanted to park it because there had been a shooting there the night before and it just wasn't safe. There was, you know, the heat was 44 degrees and 100% humidity. Like there were so many reasons and, and I remember about 14 days into the run my body had broken down so much that I couldn't even, I couldn't run anymore and walking was incredibly painful. And whenever I visualized running across India in those two years of prep, like the visualization was of myself running. And all of a sudden when I wasn't moving in the way that I visualized, I just started to go like, I I felt like a failure. I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. How am I possibly going to get through another, you know, 55 days of this? And the problem is when you're in such a negative mind space, you actually can't recover. Uh, And that's what I needed to do. If I was going to back up close to, you know, one and a half marathons every single day in that environment, I had to do everything mentally to allow my physicality to recover. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that it was a moment where I had to really, again, do a stock take on why am I doing what am I doing and remembering that just because it doesn't look how you thought it was going to look doesn't mean you shouldn't keep moving forward. And I love that quote, like slow progress is still progress. We sometimes mm. have to a- abandon what the visualisation was, detach from our plan and just become freaking agile and in the moment. And if 2020 hasn't shown us that, you know, in the biggest extent, then I don't know what will. And so how would you take all all that you have learned, you know, you're passionate about uh, peak performance and and helping so many people uh, in terms of becoming their best. Um, What are, you know, two to three words of advice, wisdom, tips that you would give people? As you said, 2020 is is one of those years where all of us are not only having to do, uh, we're having to exist, but we're also every single one of us managing our own mindset to navigate uh, through and out of this, um, sometimes daily, if not even sort of by the hour. So what what tips, what have you learned from your incredible experience from all of those amazing people that you speak to on your podcast, are there some key tips 
words of advice, wisdom that you would share with our listeners about how to make sure that their mindset um, is absolutely helping them take that one step closer to what they're ultimately trying to achieve? Uh, The first thing would be to remember that human beings sell themselves far shorter than what their true potential really is. And so that's a mindset realisation. So every time you think you've kind of maxed at your capacity, uh, I guarantee you actually could go a lot further. But what you need to do is find ways of calming your mind down to see the possibilities available to you. When we are dealing with high stress and overwhelm, that's, that's what prevents us from thinking more broadly. And that's what we have to do. Like when we're at a crossroads, we need to calm down, which means sometimes we have to stop, sit, take a break, stop churning and go, well, what are all the ways that I could potentially take the next step? And if we speak in running context, like it could be I could slow down, I could buddy up with someone else, I could listen to music, um, I could say a mantra to keep going forward, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it, it's the same applies in any um, kind of hurdle that you face in any aspect of your life. And I think then my biggest mantra that I keep saying is um, always ask myself, what is the next best plan? And for people who like to prepare and plan, this is important because like I think we plan to build bravery to get to a start line. But so often the plan is not going to serve us towards whatever is that finishing line. And what serves us to the finishing line is like being agile, being present, uh, and that helps us make the decisions that are actually relevant decisions. Yeah, it's so good. It's it's interesting because I literally have written a blog that will go out this week that is all around chasing progress versus the perfection and how sometimes we're so busy chasing perfection, we're so busy chasing that breakthrough that we forget to recognize those small steps along the way. And now more than ever in in 2020, I think this um, almost like reset to help us work our way through this is really important because there's so much that we can't control. Um, As I'm sure happens, whether you're leading a team, whether you're making a big change in your career or whether you're running a massive endurance race, there's there's so much that we can think we can control of, but actually there's so much more that we're not apart from ourselves. Oh, and I think we are being forced to redefine what our goals are. I do think that people used to think the goal was the finishing line. And in a, in a year where so many goals that people created have either been sidelined or had to be cancelled, uh, I think, you know, human human beings and particularly, and I'm thinking of myself, like I still need a goal, but I need to now know that the goal might not be able to, of the finishing line might not be able to happen because things are changing every single day in Australia and globally. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't still be moving forward and doing stuff. And actually now the goal is just moving forward. And just doing things. And so I'm learning to get appreciation for the process now and realizing like the growth isn't in the finishing, the growth is in just the doing. That's fabulous. Now, what we haven't talked about is is your passion because, it yes, it's running, but there's also such another side to you, this social impact piece. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about that and, and really what what is it that keeps you going? I mean, there's a lot that keeps me going, but 
I guess what I'm very, you know, I think it's, it's the question of what's the legacy piece. Like what, you know, at the ends of our days when we're laying in our bed, like what do we want to be proud of? And obviously I want to be proud of like the connection and the relationship that I have with those most dearest to me. And so that's a given. And then the next thing is if I could make a small impact um, with the teams that I work with in access to education, then I would be incredibly content with how I showed up on this planet. And so for me, I've always truly believed that education is this breeding ground for choice and opportunity. Uh, And the reality is more people on this planet don't have that um, available to them than do have it available to them. And the barriers to why a child cannot go to school are not as simple as a school facility not being available to them. They are issues of, you know, personal safety and protection. They're issues of food security, of of poverty, um, of poor access to feminine hygiene products, which is a project that I looked at in in, um, South Africa when I ran across the Freedom Trail. You know, 80% of women in sub-Saharan Africa in 2014 when I did that project, could not afford traditional feminine hygiene products and it became a huge causal link of women in those communities not going to school because they initially would miss five days a month of school uh, and then they would just feel so disconnected, not just from themselves but also from the education process. So I believe when a child, boy or girl, has a chance to be educated, Firstly, it fosters healthy relationships between the genders, which is is critical. It it develops respect and understanding, which is also critical. Uh, But it also gives people this scope of what is possible. And what is possible is different for everybody and what people desire is also different for everybody, but it's a starting point. Uh, And so that's something that I continually want to work in in my projects, but also how I communicate in the corporate arena, in the school arena. in, in government relationships that I have, constantly asking the question, how do we get kids into the schoolyard? Mm. Samantha, the, just everything that you talk about just is a, a classic example too of how that bigger picture purpose um, is the thing that's driving you through the channel of the running, the speaking, the podcast the product that you're offering and um, it really is inspiring to, to hear you talk about this this big key driver and, um, yeah, absolutely here supporting you all the way. Um, now this, to, to sort of slowly wrap up, this, this podcast is all about this concept of unleashing brilliance um, and much like yourself, you know, one of my, my bigger pieces of work is around how do we, use our collective force to unleash the brilliance of boys and girls that have those dreams that just need that little leg up to start pursuing their dreams because everybody does have so much more potential in them. Um, From your perspective, if you had to define from your perspective unleashing brilliance, um, how, how how would you explain it in your words? I would say that everyone has brilliance. Uh, the power is when we know how to bring it out Uh, and the understanding that each person's brilliance can be completely different. Mm. And it doesn't always have to be in like the the extraordinary, large, momentous. It's actually in the everyday. 
And again, like in the context of now, like I think we're really realizing it's the little things every day that can make a massive difference, not just to our community, but also to us as individuals. You know, wearing a mask can make a huge difference to the collective. Um, Asking someone how they are can make a huge impact. I remember after the first lockdown, um, and, and we live in the Dandenong Ranges, and the only people that we saw is when we got our coffee um, from this kind of local cafe, which for us is still like four kilometres away because we don't live near anything. Um, but I remember after that lockdown, I kind of reflected on that time and thought they made a huge impact on my day, the, the two girls behind the counter. And I remember going in there and just saying to them, hey, like if it wasn't for you guys, we would have felt incredibly disconnected during this time. Thank you for always like giving us that moment and starting our day really great. And I actually think like acknowledging people and the role that they play in how you feel is something so missed today. And I actually think that is brilliance. Like right now in the space that we're in, finding small little ways to making people feel of purpose and of value is powerful. Samantha, this this conversation has just been so inspiring. Um, thank you for being so open and sharing your story and giving permission to so many other people to actually, as you said, if you're if you're not showing up in the space where you're earning money in the right way, then maybe you're not in the right space and giving people permission to start exploring um, how to show up better. And, and also just that final piece around um, the impact that we can all have every day. You don't need to have the social media profile. You don't need to be on TV or on stage or running big businesses. It's just the, the everyday impact that all of us have the chance to make to unleash that brilliance um, in other people and allow other people to show up even more. Um, keep doing your work you are an inspiration and it's wonderful to have followed your journey over the last few years and I'm really looking forward to seeing the impact that you're going to make over the next few thanks thanks for joining us on the show today thanks so much for having me we hope you enjoyed listening to the Janine Garner show to follow her blog purchase her books or find out more visit her website janinegarner.com.au brilliant people extraordinary results